Good afternoon, Redeemer Church of Dubai. I cannot tell you how awesome it is to be able to say that in person to each and every one of you. It is, it is in a sense, a little bit overwhelming. Uh, we thought this day would never come, and here we are. It is, friends, we're just so overjoyed to be back with our Redeemer family. Today sees us come to the end of our study in the book of Hebrews. As we've studied this book, we have time and again been encouraged, we've been challenged, we've been warned, but all the while being reminded that our hope is found nowhere else but in Christ, the one who is true and better. In fact, as we've looked at this book, that almost sums up the first 10 chapters of this exhortation. It's the argument of why Christ is ultimately true and better. And then if that is true, ultimate faith is found nowhere else but in Him. And as we come to chapter 11 that we looked at a few weeks ago, we see this almost shift in the emphasis. Going from Christ who is true and better, having our faith in Him, Christ who was the epitome of the Old Testament shadows, And if our faith is in Him and is true and genuine, then as we saw two weeks ago, it's going to play itself out in certain ways. So true faith plays itself out in true endurance. And as we'll see today, true faith plays itself out in true worship. And that really is the overarching point of our text this morning. True faith displays itself in true worship worship. True faith displays itself in true worship. And as we consider that, that point, as we consider this text this morning, we're going to be looking at three points, three questions that are going to serve as our outline. The first one, what do you worship? What do you worship? We'll look at, see that in chapter 12, verses 18 to 29. Our second point or our second question is, how do you worship? That'll be chapter 13, verses 1 to 6. And then lastly, who are your examples of worship? Who are your examples of worship? Chapter 13, verses 7 to 17. But before we do that, let me just take the opportunity just to to pray one last time. Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the gift of life that you've given us. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word. Father, we pray that as we approach this text this morning, that you would give us humble hearts, you would give us ears to hear, you would give us eyes to see. Lord, prepare our hearts for this message. I pray that you would stir in our hearts new affections for you. Lord, that you would cause us to repent where we need to. But most importantly, Lord, we pray that you would be magnified and you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Show me and I will believe. Another way to say that, seeing is believing. I'm sure we can all recount at least one conversation where we've either been engaging with a friend or a family member, maybe trying to share the gospel with them or or share the truth about scripture with them, and that has been their response. That sounds good. Where's the evidence? I need to see it in order to believe it. I remember many years ago, Uh, I was in the ninth grade, and our new substitute teacher, Mr. Williamson, was busy introducing himself to us. And after rattling off some of his many accomplishments that he was boasting about, 
he uttered these words which have stuck with me ever since that day in 1998. I only believe in the things that I can see. Therefore, I do not believe in God. It was startling to say the least, especially for a 15-year-old like myself, who, although I, I wasn't a Christian, I had been raised to believe that God was very real and God did exist. But while that is perhaps something that we as professing Christians would, would never agree with, if we are honest, very often the way that we live our lives and where we put our faith and what we are actually worshiping is more often than not tied up in the physical, in what we can see and what we can experience. And as we look at our first point this morning, the question of what do you worship, the writer of Hebrews begins this section by referring his audience, by referring his readers to this very significant, very physical, very real occasion in the history of the Israelites. This was a time when having been brought out of Egypt, they were encamped around the mountain. Moses was gonna go up and he was gonna engage with God and he was gonna receive the 10 commandments. And the writer here reminds his readers of this incredible scene. Listen to this, verses 18 to 29. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages may be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. I mean, can you just imagine what that scenario must have been like for the Israelites to witness the physical presence of God descending upon the mountain, thunder, lightning, the sound of this trumpet, which has always been associated with this apocalyptic imagery. I mean, it must have been incredible. It must have been amazing to, to witness that. And yet, the point the writer is making here is don't be amazed by that. Don't be amazed by that scenario because you have something better. Look at verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. So why exactly is this better? Well, where before they physically witnessed the presence of God, Him descending on the mountain, what it ultimately did was show that they could in no way approach God. They couldn't approach Him. In fact, if they tried, if they got too close, they were to be stoned to death. His holiness and their unholiness was incompatible. But now we have Christ. Verse 24, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, as we refer to Abel, as we cast our minds back to Genesis chapter four, it, it, it's a terrible scene, right? Cain, having just killed his brother, is confronted by God who says to him, where's your brother? And Cain responds, am I my brother's keeper? 
And God says to him, Cain, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. See, friends, just as Abel's blood condemned Cain, we too stand condemned because of our sin. However, in Christ, his blood doesn't condemn us. It rescues us. He is our mediator. It was his shed blood on our behalf. He took on flesh, lived sinlessly, went to the cross and took the punishment for us, for each and every one of us because of our sin. But it didn't end there. As we reminded last week, Christ was raised from the dead on the third day, conquering sin, conquering death, and through his blood, we are now able to come before God. And as we saw in verses 22 and onward, we come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festival gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, we come to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. It's amazing. And friends, this is not something that we, we, we attempt to do in our own strength. No, no, our only hope is to turn to Christ, the object of true faith, the one where true faith is found and trust that his finished work on the cross is sufficient. Friends, if if you're sitting here today and you haven't yet done that, let me urge you now, if you're sitting at home and you haven't yet done that, let me urge you, repent, turn to Christ. Put your faith in him. Put your faith in the object of true faith. If you have any questions, please feel free. Come and chat to the elders. Come and chat to any of the staff. We'd love to chat to you about this. For those of us who have turned to Christ, I'll ask a similarly very important question. Where are you ultimately putting your faith in? What are you ultimately putting your faith in? I say this because for so many today, the Christian life is, is less about Christ. It's less about him being the object of our faith and pursuing some kind of experience. It's all about feelings and emotions and, and looking for incredible phenomena. It's this constant search for a God descending in a cloud moment. The idea that only when you have seen or, or, or been a part of something like this, then that is a sign of your true faith. And those experiences are are sought after more and more. But before we know it, these experiences begin to be the object of our faith. They begin to be what it is that we're actually worshiping. Or to put it another way, the object of our faith becomes the object of our worship. Let me say that again. The object of our faith becomes the object of our worship. And it's an important thing for us to ask. It's an important question for us to be diagnosing in our own lives. How do we know that we're there? Because the truth is it can be very subtle. The object of our worship for many may not be an emotional experience. It may not be a spiritual high. It may be something that we're simply seeking each and every day in our lives. So a good way to to perhaps diagnose this is to ask the question, if only blank, then everything in my life would be okay. If only I had enough money, 
then everything in my life would be okay. If only I had job security, then everything in my life would be okay. If only there was no corona, if only more people in the world would be able to get the vaccine, if only I had a relationship. God, if only my baby would sleep through the night. If only my boss and the people I work with took more notice of me, then my life would be okay. When our hope, when, our, when the object of our faith is placed in these and, and, and other temporary things, not only, are they what we, they, not only do they become what we worship, but as we see from the text, there's a very real warning that is given. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Friends, we as Christians have received a kingdom through Christ that cannot be shaken. That is eternal. Yet we constantly turn back to the temporary. The things that will be shaken, the things that will be removed. And yet, time and again, we are reminded how all earthly treasures simply pale in comparison to what we see even here in verses 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. I mean, just think about that. Our God is a consuming fire. I remember a few years ago, there were terrible fires in South Africa. And when you saw the videos, those fires just raged on. Nothing could stand in its way. It destroyed everything in its path. He's telling us, this is our God. Our God is this all-consuming fire. Nothing can stand against it. Nothing can stop it. Nothing can stand in His way. Friend, that is to be the object of our worship. That is to be who and what we worship. And if that is what we worship, that this all-consuming God, well, what is acceptable worship? And that brings us to our next question. The question that we need to ask is, how do we worship? Look at uh, chapter 13, verses one to five. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you, are, you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Friends, do we realize that the way that we live our lives, the way that we live our lives is an act of worship? The point here is that if you have true faith, if the object of your faith is Christ, if true faith is found in him, then that is gonna reflect in the life that you live. You will conduct your life in a way that honors the Lord. 
So, you love your brother or sister in Christ, which may at times mean that you rebuke, that you may admonish, but that you encourage them as well. We worship in how we show hospitality, a life that welcomes people in, a life that is kind. Now, obviously, I know during COVID, we, we want to be cautious. We, we don't want to have huge house parties, but that doesn't mean we shut the world out. No, we bring people in. We take the time to pray for our fellow believers who are facing persecution. I mean, let's be honest, for the majority of us, if we consider our home countries, persecution is something that we've never had to face. We, we're not facing persecution because of our faith. Even here in the UAE, we are in a place that is far more tolerant than the rest of this region. But there are many across the globe for whom being a follower a follower of Jesus is a prison sentence or even a death sentence. Friends, do we take the time to pray for them? The writer gives us a strong reminder that we should remember them as though we were in prison with them. I mean, if we were in prison, we would be on our knees day and night praying. Friends, being on your knees in prayer for those who are, who are persecuted, for fellow believers, is an act of worship. For those of us who are married, marriages are an act of worship. They are to show the world not only Christ's love for his bride, the church, but as we love our spouse, as we delight in this incredible gift that God has given us, we worship and praise him for that. But when we start to look elsewhere or we become dissatisfied, we're essentially saying that, God, what you've given me isn't good enough. I think I can do better. Friends, let me just quickly add here, if you are struggling, if you're, if you're in a marriage and you guys are struggling, don't keep that to yourself. Don't try, just sweep it under the rug. Friends, let your community group lead alone. Let, let one of the elders know. Far too often, struggling marriages are brought to the table at a time when it's far more difficult, not impossible, but far more difficult to love and care for you. So again, if that is you, please bring it to the light. Let us know. We would love to, to care for you. We'd love to walk that with you. That's one of the beauties about being in a local church community. You don't have to face struggles alone. The last point the author makes in this section is, is how we worship through money. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In times like this, with such uncertainty, it's easy to look to finances as our point of security. I said it earlier, if only I had enough money, then my life would be okay. And over the past year, job loss and financial um, uncertainty have been very real everyday occurrences. And our temptation can be to, to hold on to what we have because we don't know when it's gonna be taken away from us. But all it does is reveal where our faith ultimately is. Think, friends, if, if our faith is found in the one who has taken care of our greatest need, if it's found in the one who is all-consuming, then surely we can find comfort in the fact that he will also take care of our earthly needs. Now, don't get me wrong, this is in 
no way a, a prosperity gospel plague. This is not if you just have enough faith and all your wildest dreams are gonna be taken care of. No, no. Rather, we are to be content with what we have. And honestly, moving back to Dubai, I was reminded that this is not the easiest thing to do here. Shopping festivals, Ramadan discounts, the opportunity to get things and pay them off at really low prices with zero interest over a long amount of time, it's so appealing. It's so easy to fall into the trap of materialism. But we are called to be content with what we have, to keep our lives free from the love of money. Why? Because of who God is. Look at the promise that he makes in verse six. Never will I leave you nor forsake you. So how do we worship with our lives through finances? How do we live in a way that shows that we are not tied to these earthly riches? Well, one way is giving to the local church, giving to the work and the ministry. Another way is put money away that will allow you to be a blessing or to help those who are in need. Or perhaps you can use it to support international uh, intentional workers. Or perhaps even start an adoption fund where you can help those who've been called to adopt but may not have all the funds required to pay for all the fees. Whatever it may be, look to live in a way, look to use your finances that shows that your faith is not ultimately in them. We know that God loves a cheerful giver. And we know that he has promised that he will never leave nor forsake us. And look, the reality is there are many, many other ways and I encourage you perhaps discuss this over lunch or whatever the case may be, but there are many more ways that we can live our lives in a way that shows that we worship God and not the things of this world. But our final question that we need to ask from this text is, who are your examples of worship? Look at verse seven. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Who are your examples of faith? Who are those that you look to to imitate in the faith? Now more than ever, we have had the opportunity to YouTube sermons from just about every corner of the globe. You know, when public gatherings were banned, churches were scrambling to figure out, right, how do we, how do we reach our congregations? How do we still bring the word? And a byproduct of that is now it means it's more available to, to more people than it ever has been before. And while this is an incredible opportunity for the word to be proclaimed, sadly, more and more people are just giving up the physical gathering of the church for popcorn church. Now I say that a bit tongue in cheek, but I also realize that the current limitations prevent us from gathering together as a whole body. And if you're at home and you're watching and you know, especially if you've been on the waiting list to join one of these services, please know that we have a process and as that process is refined and perfected, there will be more and more opportunities for people to join us on a Friday. But here's my point to all of this. As you are exposed to more and more preachers, we need to be careful of how we view them. There is a reason that healthy churches have local elders in the local church. Not only are they to shepherd the church, but they are to be the examples to the church. 
You know, if we just, don't do that now, but as we jump to, to 1 Timothy chapter 3, we think about Titus, we think about those, those qualifications for an elder, right? Uh, he must be above reproach, husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, managing his own household well, keeping his children submissive, must not be a recent convert. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. You know, it's been said before that the most remarkable thing about this, this list, about these qualifications, is just how unremarkable they are. Aside from being able to teach, they really sum up what the Christian life should look like. But if you aren't plugged into a local church body, if you aren't connected to a local church then how will you know if the leaders of those that you are listening to fulfill this biblical mandate? There is a responsibility here on the members of the church to observe the life of the elders and hold them accountable to that. Sandy, there are far too many pastors today across the globe who view themselves as being above all of this. This kind of celebrity pastor mentality that has crept into more and more churches. I mean, I know of some pastors who will literally arrive to the service five, 10 minutes before they're due to preach. They will then get up, preach, and as quickly as possible, disappear and go lock themselves in their office. There's no opportunities to see whether they're being hospitable. I'm thankful for the elders of Redeemer. Friends, I've gotten to know most of them on a personal level over the years and have witnessed how they model these qualifications. But brothers, I urge you, be cautious of falling into this trap. I also realize that with three elder candidates in Jerry Zamora, Joe Matthew, and myself, part of seeing if we are actually qualified to fulfill this role is to observe our lives. And I know with, with Jerry and with Joe, it's been somewhat easier even during this whole COVID pandemic, but it's been quite difficult with myself. So as I stand here this morning, friends, I'm urging you to take this responsibility seriously. Get to know me. Get to know my family. Take a look at these qualifications that you see and see if I meet those qualifications. It's a serious, serious responsibility both for myself and for the members of this church. Friends, we wanna be part of a church where the leaders are examples of worship and how they conduct themselves, how they love their families, how they interact with you. Not only those in the church, but those outside the church as well. And this just isn't possible if you're only watching someone 25 or 30 minutes once a week on YouTube. Now, don't get me wrong, right? I'm not at all suggesting that you don't listen to other preachers. Those of you who know me well will know that my favorite preacher, apart from Dave Furman, is Martin Lloyd-Jones. He died in 1981. But thankfully, I have over the years read biographies and heard from people that knew him, listened to his sermons, and he was someone whose life was an example of what we are considering this afternoon. Friends, don't just follow someone because they're popular. It's so easy to do that, to jump on the bandwagon. Get to know who it is that is preaching, especially in your local church. Sadly, more and more of these 
popular preachers, the ones that are, have millions of followers on, on Instagram and Twitter and, and loads of downloads on YouTube are popular because they're preaching a popular message. A message that minimizes sin. A message that lessens God's justice and preaches a message that is far more about motivating you and making you feel good about yourself than convicting and pointing to the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Be on guard. Don't fall into that trap. As we look a bit further down in this, this text, we're reminded of where our faith is to be found. Again, once again, we're appointed to the one that suffered on our behalf, the one who was ridiculed, who suffered outside the camp, so that through his blood, we may be sanctified. Does the life of the preacher that you follow or that you listen to follow that example? Do they wholeheartedly follow Christ? And if the answer to that is yes, how do you know? Lastly, while this may sound like a bit of an elder bashing session, I assure you that it's not. The weight of responsibility that comes with leadership in the church is a privilege. It is a privilege. As one who served here as an elder before, I can tell you it is an absolute privilege to serve the church in that way. But it also, for the members of the church, we are called to respond appropriately. Verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to, uh, to you. Anyone who's ever considered the role of leadership in the church should always do so with fear and trembling. To know that one day they will have to stand before God and give an account it's a humbling and scary thought. But God does supply grace and he sustains those whose lives are to be examples of what we have seen throughout this book. Lives that have found faith in the one that is true and better, who are holding on to that true faith. And by holding on to that true faith, by that being the one that they worship, it plays out in how they worship and are living their lives as an example to you of worship. Ones that hold on to true faith that leads to true endurance and ultimately to true worship. Obey your leaders, submit to them. It's a responsibility that every church member has. And again, it's something that can only be lived out in the local church, in meaningful membership. Lastly, friends, I urge you, pray for your leaders. Pray for those who aspire to leadership. The devil is prowling around like a roaring lion and more and more those that he is devouring are the ones in leadership. Pray that the elders of this church, pray for the ones who desire to be elders in the future would live out what we have seen not only in this passage but throughout Hebrews. That their faith is in the one that is true and better. And that this true faith would live, uh, lead to lives of true worship. Let's pray. 
Well, Father God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your, the, the, the study in the book of Hebrews. Lord, we thank you for what you have revealed to us. We thank you for the way that you have warned us. We thank you for the way that you have encouraged us. Father, I pray that as we go from this book, as we consider the truths that we have learned over these weeks, Father, I pray that our lives will be transformed, that we would be a people who, who have faith in the one that is true and better, whose faith in that one is true and better plays itself out in how we worship. And Lord, that we would be examples to those around us. Most importantly, Lord, we pray that this would all be done for the praise and glory of your name alone. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.